Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, in for Roy Green, and here's what's on the podcast. The threat of DFI, digital foreign interference. We'll speak with Alex Wilner, lead author of a new report from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Alcohol contains calories. Gosh, lots of them. And many researchers say we should have calorie information on booze labels. We'll talk to a lead author of a study and find out why. Jackson Prosco from Global News is on the beaches of Daytona in Florida. We'll have an update on Hurricane Dorian, and we'll talk to an educator in Alberta who says we're failing our students by not teaching them basic handwriting. Those stories and more on the Roy Green Show podcast. Enjoy. We begin today on a kind of a scary note, actually, not a paranoid note. It's, we're beyond that. We just need information about the threat of digital foreign interference. There is a new report prepared for the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, we have the lead author of that report. He is a professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa and a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. A real pleasure to welcome Professor Alex Wilner to the program. Alex, welcome to the Roy Green Show, sir. Hello, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you, albeit a little scary at the same time. I don't mind telling you, Professor Wilner, you and your four co-authors have uh, produced quite a report, quite a lengthy report on DFI, Digital Foreign Interference, uh, to the point where uh, we need to talk about this a lot. And I would like you to point out examples of this going on in the world uh, right in front of our noses right now. Right, okay, so... Digital foreign interference, uh, DFI for short, is uh, a combination of things. Mostly it's about misinformation. So this is highly biased or, or but highly biased but factual information. Mm-hmm. And then the, the sister would be disinformation, which is false or fabricated. Now, we, you've probably heard of propaganda. Propaganda has sure. been around for, for many generations. But DFI is, is kind of a new beast. It uses uh, social media and other forms of technology to spread misinformation and disinformation. And the kind of focus that we're focusing on in the paper itself is um, the types of disinformation and misinformation that are used against democracies. You use um, you use the word propaganda, Alex, and I think rightly so, because. but you also refer to this new digital foreign interference business as an evolved form of traditional propaganda. The the game remains the same. The the object of the game remains the same. It's just the tools in in the game are dramatically different in 2019. Exactly right. So I, I, one way to look at it is to think of, of digital foreign interference as a as propaganda for the internet age. And right. So w- what some of these countries that are using DFI they're, they're trying to create political uncertainty in target countries to create social or civic unrest or tension. And we see that, of course, in the United States, and we've seen that in Germany and elsewhere. In other cases, DFI is being used by foreign entities to promote their own foreign interests in another target country, mm-hmm. Russia doing this in particular. And, and I think overall, and you know, almost like a philosophical problem here, is that it decreases the notion of truth. So, foreign, so, so when we are... Um, the target of a digital foreign interference, we have uh, a difficulty understanding the, the, the facts of a matter. And so it reduces the public uh, trust in the democratic institution. And so these are the kind of things that we have to think about and, um, and, and tackle as a democracy heading into an election. 
Absolutely. Now, Alex, who are the major players in this film? I'm assuming the big bad guys. Uh, I'm going back to the Cold War, and I don't imagine much has changed. The bad guys are Russia and China, and Russia is the more aggressive of the two, but China is by no means a distant second. How close am I to what's really going on? Certainly in the report, we focus on uh, Russian and Chinese disinformation and mm-hmm. disinformation targeting countries like Canada. Um, and we have case studies in the report from Germany, the UK, France, and Taiwan, all democracies in which uh, one of the two actors, Russia or China, has used digital foreign interference to affect change. Um, so just for, like a quick example, right? A quick example comes from the United, United Kingdom. In 2018, there was the near near poisoning of a former uh, Soviet uh, intelligence uh, That's right. officer. That's uh, right. Wasn't it a tip of an umbrella or something, a kind well, of a stabbing it thing? Was, it was more like a spray on his on his door handle. Oh, that's right. Yes, exactly. And his daughter was affected as well. Exactly right, and a police officer as well. The, the point is, when the UK um, invest, it, it continued and it, ongoing now, in fact. But when it started publishing material of the investigation, there was a concerted foreign interference, a digital foreign interference campaign, obviously launched by Russia to discredit the UK's uh, approach and investigation. And so basically they were trying to muck up uh, on social media and to fabricate lies about the UK um, uh, investigation to to force uh, British people in this case to contemplate the fact that perhaps their government hadn't gotten it right. And so this was a very concerted effort. It had nothing to do with an election. It had something to do much more with a criminal investigation. Right. We've seen cases in France with the Macron leaks, so-called Macron leaks, quote-unquote, in which, again, very likely a Russian state uh, 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 operation to try to discredit Macron, who was, a, who was at the time the lead candidate in the presidential election. So this is, this, this is the new world in which Canada sees itself. And in the report, we're trying to provide cases of, of, these, uh, of these campaigns and then to try to kind of cultivate lessons and best practices for Canada moving forward. Indeed. Now, Alex, I need to take a quick break, but just before we do, the Brexit situation in England right now is boiling over. Everybody's mad at Johnson. Uh, The Europeans are just mad at Britain. It's not working out very well at all. And some would point to the Brexit referendum uh, a year or more ago now. Uh, Was that in any way, are you aware of the Russians trying to influence the outcome of the referendum on Britain leaving the European Union? I think um, it's likely that the Russians wanted to um, uh, muck up that whole process. It's, it's not possible, it's maybe not possible to put our finger on a specific element in which they tried to affect the vote itself, but they okay. certainly wanted to discredit both sides, um, again, to, to make democracy more difficult to practice. Putin is a is a specialist in destabilization. That's what he's after the glory days of the Soviet Union. He's not going to get him, but he's going to do his best, and there's going to be a lot of instability as a result of it. Our guest is joining us from Carleton University, where he is a president, a professor rather, of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. His name is Alex Wilner. He's also the lead author of a new report from the McDonald Laurier Institute entitled "The Threat of Digital Foreign Interference." Past present and future. Alex, let's dive right into the present. We have an election coming up across Canada. There's one underway in Manitoba right now, but we have a national election coming up literally in a matter of about six or seven weeks. Uh, We know from your report and a lot of other people warning us that there will be attempts to interfere with the outcome of the Canadian election. So what should we be watching for? So... I mean, traditionally, lessons from, again, from our allies in Europe uh, and elsewhere, that the disinformation is it's ultimately about what we read um, and, and what we uh, partake in, the conversations we partake in online. And the, the point ultimately is that foreign actors have found that when they, they, when they disseminate misinformation, disinformation online, that they can tweak the debates that we have at the national level. Um, here in Canada or elsewhere, obviously. And so what we need to look out for, ultimately, is is kind of boosted um, content that is shared online that meets the demands of a foreign entity um, and that, that, that doesn't reflect um, necessarily the interests of Canadians or of Canada as, as a country. Okay, so that's Alex, hard do- to do. That's hard, hard to spot, but this, yeah. is, this is the reality. 
Do they have a favorite platform? Is their Facebook their their preferred uh, area uh, or Twitter or Instagram, or do they just cover them all? They cover them all. They cover them all. And these, these are the lessons, of course, from 2016, 2017, 2018, is that they hop from one platform to the other. They don't stick necessarily to one. They try to trigger them all, um, and they try to insert themselves into these uh, debates, national debates that we have, to try to kind of tweak the messaging and the narrative around some of the debates that we have in Canada. And again, they can do this in, in, in some times, they do this in France, for instance, to uh, help perpetrate or to promote a favored candidate um, in, in France, as was the case. But in Germany, uh, sometimes it's just simply to, again, discredit the democratic system so that Canadians, in this case, would mistrust the information they have, mistrust the messages that they find from mainstream media and from mainstream uh, uh, candidates. I wanted to talk about video forgeries, Alex. These, mm-hmm. You call them deep fakes. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of the dark state and all of this sort of uh, weird uh, chatter going on. Some of it you believe, some of it you don't know whether you should believe it or not. And then you have this thing in a report in Canada that says, yeah, deep fakes are real. So what are we talking about here? This is this is the future of DFI, the digital foreign interference Basically, what, what, we're, what we already have in place now are bots. These are um, autonomous, or sorry, automated software programs that boost material or push content online. But what ha- what's going to happen shortly, and, is, and it's already happening now, but what's going to be much more evident in the, in the coming years is the connection between bots and artificial intelligence. And so our AI, artificial intelligence, will provide these bots with the ability to create social media content, not just to disseminate but to actually create fabricated pictures, fabricated videos, Mm -hmm. um, and and so forth. And so the fabricated videos, uh, those are called deep fakes. It's just a terminology. But all of it is synthesized information that is machine-driven. It's machine-made. The point ultimately is today, often, even at the naked eye, we can can see a deep fake video. You know, the the imaging is... Yeah, something's been photoshopped, and it's not very well done. It's, but this is very sophisticated. This is, this is leagues away from Photoshop, right? This okay. Is, this is the artificial intelligence of Photoshop. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the technology itself is improving rapidly, and we see this already. So the writing on the wall, this is, this is the scary part. The writing on the wall is if digital foreign interference is today human-operated and manually created and disseminated, the future, the near future, three to five years, is that the uh, digital foreign interference will largely be AI created and AI disseminated. Mm -hmm. We're going to be piling up. um, We're going to be basically integrating a pile of of digitized AI-generated material on social media, much of it fabricated, some of it meant to weaken democratic entities. We're going to be buried in this pile of data. Right. So, Alex, you talked about these bots, which now have some kind of, they have limited capability to create content. So where are you going to find what they do? Would it be in chat rooms, in the comments section uh, of some newspapers? Where are they most likely to pop up? They're going to pop up everywhere. So basically the point could be simply that um, a foreign actor with a malicious axe to grind will develop this artificial intelligence uh, material, uh, an enabled material, say a video of, um, of our uh, leading prime ministerial candidate saying some r- truly outrageous racist things. Sure. And again, the candidate never said these things, but the artificial intelligence will be able to synthesize audio and to fabricate the, the, the video material through facial recognition algorithms to, il- to, to mimic their voice and facial appearances and have a video of them saying something. Now, that video could very well go viral on any number of social platforms, mm-hmm. um, and even though it, it, the material itself is not true. And so it will be very difficult for the candidate to then point to that and say, you know what, that's, that's fake material. How would they know? How would we counter it? And even worse than that is if a candidate actually did say things like that, they could simply point to it and say, well, clearly that's a fake video. Again, it's the notion of truth that is the loser in this future of uh, DFI. 
Okay, now you and your four co-authors of this McDonald Laurier Institute report spend a fair bit of time on the the enemy, the dangers that we face, and the unbelievable level of sophistication that these uh, uh, that are already uh, operating on, Alex. And of course, now you're talking about the future, and frankly, that's even scarier. So what? What do you recommend, not only we the voter, as we approach our election, and I mean, it's going to be nasty, they're already throwing muck and it's not even pretty already, and they haven't even dropped the blinking writ yet, so that's going to get ugly. How are we going to be able to distinguish mudslinging from flat-out lying from a third-party type source? Part of the conclusion in the paper itself is our recommendations in different categories. Some of the recommendations are targeted towards companies and firms. These are companies that, that produce or provide the social media platforms themselves. Mm-hmm. And so one of, the, you know, one of the recommendations is that these companies be held more accountable for the information that is shared and disseminated on their platforms. Here, this here. is happening already, right? So Facebook is currently, and Twitter as well, currently take down far-right um, and other extremist material online. Um, and they do so partly because they're being regulated to do so, but also because they see a, a social necessity to do so. But basically, we should we should expect them to do much more to flag and potentially delete fake news and to encourage to be more, and we should encourage them to be more transparent with regulators in terms of how they themselves use artificial intelligence to boost material online. So those are recommendations simply for companies and firms. Okay. But on the geostrategic side of things, Canada needs to work together, as we already are through the G7, through the Group of Seven. We need to work together with other targeted countries, democracies primarily, to try to uncover the best practices and the best responses for sharing information on current and emerging DFI threats and responses. And so part of what Canada is already doing through Global Affairs Canada is to run, uh, is to lead the rapid response mechanisms through the G7. This is fancy, fancy words for basically sitting down together with our friends and allies in other foreign, uh, in foreign governments and to, to, again, come together around uh, foreign, uh, digital foreign interference and to come to the assistance of allies when they are targeted with the expectation that they come to our assistance when sure. we are targeted. So that's a sharing of intelligence and a sharing of responses. And finally, another set of of recommendations ultimately has to do with simply building up excellence in artificial intelligence in this country with the expectation that some of the solutions to deepfake videos and other synthesized texts is artificially enhanced. So it's using AI to counter AI. And so we need to have the excellence domestically built um, to to allow us, I think, to identify uh, future threats um, and to put them into the proper context. Do you feel, Alex, that we're taking this seriously enough at all levels, the individual voter, citizen, uh, the government, the national security establishment? Only a few seconds, big question, but what do you think? I think there's much more awareness, certainly within government and within certain uh, parts of society, expert parts of society, if you will. I mean, the fact is, if you if you are interviewing me on this, that means that Canadians are themselves be, are becoming more educated Hope so. on digital foreign interference. Yeah, so I think we're having the right conversation. I think there are gonna, there's a long, bumpy road ahead of us. There's going to be lessons from inter, from international partnerships, but I think we're 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 at least broaching the subject in an appropriate manner. I thank you for your time on Labor Day weekend. This is terribly important stuff, and you're the lead guy on this project, Alex. Very informative chat. We're grateful. Thank you very much. Professor Alex Wilner at the Carleton University in Ottawa. You want to read that report. It's a bit spooky, but you should know more. It's at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Roy is on vacation. My name is Sterling Fox. It's a pleasure to be with you again today as we kick off the month of September and enjoy a little time off on Labor Day weekend, perhaps with some family, with some friends, have a couple of cold ones, and, you know, just kind of let the let the summer ease out in a gentle sort of way. Uh, the cold ones is the subject of our next conversation and guest because it's a, it's a very interesting proposition. The people at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria have put out. Basically, they've written a report recently saying, uh, well, there's a lot of calories in booze, and uh, drinkers don't 
don't necessarily, um, well, take note of that. And they're indicating perhaps that uh, maybe some of those manufacturers of those uh, liquid products uh, should indicate exactly the calorie content and other nutritional information. Our next guest is the lead author of this report. He is a professor at the University of Victoria. He is Adam Shirk. Professor Shirk, Adam, welcome to the program. Good to have you on today. Having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, tell us a little bit. Now, first of all, I should mention this study was actually published a few months ago in the Canadian Journal of Dietetic Practice and Research back in February. So it's just sort of coming to uh, to the surface now. Uh, but let's talk. Let's talk turkey here, Adam. Let's talk about the math involved. <laughs> How many calories in a beer or a cocktail? I'm happy to say, just let me say first, I'm not actually a professor. I'm a postdoc fellow, but this is, this is neither here nor there for what we're talking about oh, today. Oh, that's okay, though. So, um, I gave you one too many the... stripes, didn't I? <laughs> you did. Maybe sometime in the future. I can exactly. Um, it's pretty startling. When What we wanted to look at in this study was just how many calories we're getting from alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I wanted to know this was not just as a researcher, but also as a drinker myself, I wasn't even really sure how many calories I'm getting from the alcohol that I'm drinking. Okay. What we found was, it was surprising to me and to the others in the study as well, we get, on average, Canadian drinkers get almost 250 calories from alcohol every single day, despite the fact that alcohol... um, alcohol doesn't have to label calories or other nutritional information on the packaging that it comes in. And that's the equivalent to a small bag of potato chips, basically, right? That's right, but it's also equivalent to more than one-tenth of all our recommended calories. In fact, 11% of all our recommended calories we're getting from alcoholic beverages as drinkers every single day. Interesting. Now, Adam, I made a distinction between beer and cocktails, and then I'm going to throw in wine as as a as a third option. Are the uh, calorie is the calorie content roughly equivalent across the alcohol spectrum, or is one particular type more caloric than others? A great question. Some are more caloric than others. So, at the very top, at over 200 calories per drink, are the the kind of ready to drink. Um, cocktails and already mixed drinks that you'll get in a can or or in a bottle. Oh, like those vodka Um, coolers that are so popular this summer? Exactly. Or cider is in that category as well, Mm -hmm. because there tends to be a lot of sugar in those. Among the three kind of main um, beverage categories, beer, wine, and and hard liquor, beer is the most. There's In a bottle or a can of beer, we're looking at around 140 or 150 calories, depending on the alcohol strength. And then down, bringing up uh, with a few uh, less calories in that are are the red and white wines mm-hmm. and also uh, the spirits. But something that really surprised me was even in a shot of spirits and a shot of hard liquor, uh, there's about 90 calories just in that. So the ethanol itself, the pure alcohol that we're drinking, is is quite calorie dense. We're getting a lot of calories just from the alcohol itself. Interesting. Back to beer for a second, if you don't mind my jumping around a little bit on you, Adam. You talked about as the uh, uh, the alcohol content of beer increases, I'm thinking now high test, uh, is that more caloric than, say, something light? Certainly true, yeah. Definitely on average. So the higher the ethanol, the pure alcohol percentage, the more calories that, that beverage is almost certainly going to have. Okay. And obviously, uh, then you get into the the syrupy stuff, the Baileys, the uh, the Grand Marnier, mm. the really sugary, sugary. Those are the, of all the things that drinkers would be aware of in terms of calories, Adam. I think those syrupy sweet ones. You go and yeah, this is going to be fattening, but darn, it's <laughs> awfully good. Uh, and that, but we are at least aware of it at that level when we get into the Baileys and stuff, right? Well, and one of the things that we found with this study was that. People uh, are not particularly aware of the number of calories oh, really? in okay. alcohol. Um, it, it is surprising just because of, of the large percentage of our total calories that alcohol makes up. So something that's kind of interesting for all of us to think about is, is why alcohol, almost uniquely among all um, food and beverages in Canada that come in packages, alcohol is exempt from lab- labeling calorie and nutritional information on its packaging. 
It's interesting, and, and, and let me just be the devil's advocate and play Health Canada in the conversation, because uh, we I'm reading a report here uh, written mm-hmm. in uh, in uh, Glacier Media about this story, and you, of course, have uh, been in contact with, with Health Canada, and basically their response is, we don't want nutritional information on alcoholic beverage containers because people might infer that there's some kind of nutritional benefit to be drinking these beverages, and they don't frankly think there's any. Is that a reasonable response? It sounds kind of reasonable to me. It uh, There's some logic to it, but on the other hand, I think it kind of falls flat, and this is why. There are lots of things that do have the calorie and nutritional labeling on them that I'm pretty sure we'd understand are not food and are not places that we're supposed to be looking for nutrition. Right. And some of the examples of these are, are a cola can. We know we're not getting any high nutrition from a, a bottle of Coke, for example. Oh, right, right. Another thing that has um, a nutrition facts label on it is bottled water, which just has zeros everywhere. And, of course, we know that that's not food. Mm-hmm. And then another really interesting to think about um, people can do this. They can go into the grocery store. They can look at non-alcoholic beer, alcoholic beer, or non-alcoholic beer with right, of course, 0.5% yeah. alcohol in it. And those have nutrition labels on them as well. And so the, the argument from Health Canada, it, it's not consistent, at least across all the beverages. It's, it's actually just the alcohol itself that is making these um, beverage is exempt from having labeling, whereas many other beverages that we know have nutritional value, have no nutritional value, um, do have to label with nutrition facts. I need to take a break, but it also sounds kind of insulting from your perspective that uh, that Canadian drinkers would be able to not determine for themselves that, no, there's not a lot of nutritional beverage in this drink, even though it, I may call it a barley sandwich, it's a beer. <laughs> I would right? agree with that, too. All right. Our guest is Adam Shirk, a senior researcher at the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. He's a lead author of the study that was published a few months ago and basically takes a position that he thinks that alcohol producers should provide nutritional information on their labels by way of letting drinkers know exactly how many calories uh, this involves, whether it's on a beer can or a wine bottle or whatever. And Adam, typically, you said the t- the average Canadian drinker consumes how much of their daily calorie allotment uh, through alcohol on a daily basis? Yeah, on average, that's about 250 calories per day, or 11% of all the calories we should be having on a, on a given day. Okay. Uh, we've got some callers here. We're going to take those in a second. But you also go on to, to this is sort of, to you, this, uh, as I read the, the story around your study, this seems to be a, kind of an ethical question for you, Adam, from the point of view of the consumer's right to know. I agree. As a drinker myself, I think that we have the right to know what's in the products that we're eating and drinking. And um, as I said before, alcohol is kind of unique in being exempt from many of the regulations that almost all other food and beverages that come in packages in Canada have to follow. Okay, so let's talk to some consumers. Uh, Chad in Edmonton, I assume, has had a, uh, an adult beverage or two in his, in his life. Yeah. Uh, Chad, what do you make of all of this? Well, that's exactly what I was talking about is, you know, Everything else has a, you know, a label, nutritional information. Uh-huh. E- even your bottled water has nutritional information. That's what Adam said earlier, yeah. And, you know, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, I don't know if it's to cover the, uh, you know, the labeling or, or whatever, but, like, what, what's in this beverage? Um, you know, I, I love to consume beer, and, I mean, whether it's beer or any other kind of alcohol, I mean... Uh, yeah, there should be some kind of labeling, like uh, what the ingredients are, at least. Okay, so uh, as part of that labeling, Chad, uh, obviously the the amount of calories. If you're going to talk about right. the ingredients in in the in the, in the substance, then you're going to talk about how many calories it represents to the consumer. Well, well definitely, and that would okay. that would be provided with the nutritional information, and well, it should be, you know. All right, thanks, Chad. I appreciate the call, uh, Adam. You would agree, obviously. Chad's in your corner on this. He wants all the uh, information about whatever you're drinking to be available on the label. Are you that? Are you that? far along with him? 
Oh, I agree, Chad, and I thanks for calling in and, and giving us your support. Um, what I would say is that these, these food and beverage regulations are set out by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Yep. You can go online and read them, and it's interesting. There's, there's a specific section for alcoholic beverages, and really all it says is it just has one line, and it says alcoholic beverages with um, an alcohol by volume greater than 0.5 are exempt from having the nutrition facts label on it mm-hmm. like so many of our other food and beverage products. So there's no rationale, of course, in the regulations, but it's interesting that it's the alcohol itself, the pure alcohol, that is making these alcoholic beverages exempt from labeling this, this very common information. Interesting. And as you pointed out, the near beer, the, uh, the stuff you can buy in the grocery store, has all the nutritional information on it. I know that was really interesting to me, and that kind of goes against the rationale that Health Canada gave, where they don't want Canadians looking at alcoholic beverages as having nutritional value. Uh, right, right. But surely, uh, if we're going to put it on near beer, we should also put it on real. On beer. real beer, exactly. It kind of makes sense, hand in glove, doesn't it? Uh, back to the phones to Vancouver this time, Sean. Uh, what do you hey. think about labeling on uh, alcohol containers? Well, I think it definitely should be there. I mean, I've got a friend who has this notion that if he has uh, three shots of vodka, that those are just empty calories because they're not beer or a uh, proper mixed drink, and he should be able to drink as many of those as he wants to. Of course, that's a problem in itself, but uh, at least put a picture of a potato next to uh, a shot of vodka so you know that (laughs) one shot of vodka is a third of a potato. (laughs) Well, because you're right, and vodka is is a favorite on this part too, Sean, because it is seen by most drinkers as being the purest form of alcohol, and, and how could that possibly have any calories, right? Absolutely. And, you know, this, this really confuses the folks who are trying to lose weight because they'll switch from having a cocktail or a beer to go to have vodka with soda, but they don't realize that just because it's clear and it says vodka, it has still calories in it. Interesting stuff. Good call. Thank you very much, Sean. Adam, he made some good points there. And is, have you, you're the researcher in this particular conversation. Have you noticed that about drinkers reacting particularly to vodka in that way? I'd include vodka with, with all other hard liquor because it is it was really surprising how many calories are in hard liquor itself. Sure. Even just that um, a regular shot of, of hard liquor, 1.5 ounces, um, that's packing like on average across all the different liquor types, 90 calories just in that shot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, those shots can, <laughs> they can pile up pretty quick sometimes. No, no question. So quite a number of calories, um, quite a number of calories from those. They are empty in a way that they don't have much other nutritional value, but they're still adding on to your calorie count for the day. So I was gonna, if you're if you're watching your waistline or... As, know, as one of our callers of was just talking well. about that, yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering, though, the one thing I haven't asked you about in this whole conversation, Adam, is the alcohol production industry, whether it's wineries or uh, breweries or spirit manufacturers. Uh, they, You haven't said anything about them. We've talked about you and your research and the response mm-hmm. from the government agency responsible mm-hmm. for implementing uh, rules about labeling, but those who will be putting the labels on the bottle I haven't heard anything about them. Are they resisting this? Are they sitting on the sidelines, keeping as quiet as possible? What's their position, Adam? That's a good question. Now, I haven't heard anything specifically from producers about this study. I will say that that some manufacturers, they do put calories onto their product, optionally, uh, voluntarily. It's voluntarily, Um, okay. Yeah, so this is to kind of maybe def- differentiate themselves from other products in the market mm-hmm. because they're marketing themselves as having low calories. Um, I will say this, it, it's difficult to, to be too mad at, at the industry for not putting labeling on if, if they're specifically exempt from doing so. Now, why it is they are exempt, and these regulations have been around for decades, so it's hard to sort out maybe why that was in the first place. Um, but the regulations are just such that they're exempt from putting these labels on. And so I think it's more of a regulatory issue. We need to, as a country and as a society of drinkers, thinking about 
um, adding the nutrition facts label with calorie nutritional information to alcoholic beverages. Uh, step back for a, a, a second and give us a, 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 an indication, Adam, what other countries in the world are ahead of us in this regard? Do they require, for example, nutritional labeling on alcohol-containing products elsewhere? That's a great question. So the the um, alcohol labeling regulations globally are a bit of a hodgepodge, to be Thought honest. Thought so. Mm-hmm. Many other countries require more labeling than Canada. In Canada, we only require the size of the product um, in milliliters, you know, like a bottle is 341 mils. Mm-hmm. And then that ABV, the alcohol by volume, the percentage that's on it as well, that's, those are the only two things that are required. In Australia, for example, they also have to put a label on which talks about the number of standard drinks that are in, in uh, the different containers of alcohol. So that people can more readily um, keep track. So there's of partial the information there, right? Okay. Yeah. Even in the U.S., there's a mandatory health warning on all alcohol products that talks about the risk of drinking during pregnancy sure. and the risk yep. of operating vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so, on kind of all these different fronts, the health harms labeling, um, how much alcohol is is in a container, and the nutrition facts uh, label as well. Canada's kind of lagging behind some of these these other um, places around the world. So lots of work to do. Adam, I'm fresh out of time. I got 10 seconds for you to tell our listeners where to find your study online. That's a great question. You can go to our website. It's cisur.ca. You'll be able to find the, the study through there. And, and my institute is, uh, we're located at the University of Victoria. Adam Shirk, thanks very much for this. Great to have you on the show. Appreciate your time on Labor Day weekend. Thanks so much. Have a good day, all. You too. Back after this. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Back to Florida, we had the pleasure of speaking with Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief, who is away from the confines of the cushy office in Washington and on the beaches of Florida covering the arrival of Hurricane Dorian. Jackson was in Daytona yesterday and is there this afternoon again as we join him live on the beach. Jackson, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good afternoon. So yesterday, uh, you were saying that uh, the progress of the hurricane had slowed down some and the intensity level had backed off a little bit. But since you and I spoke yesterday, Jackson, I've seen nothing but Category 5, Category 5. So clearly, the intensity has ramped right back up, and it's all over the Bahamas right now, right? Yeah, and from the early pictures we've seen coming out of the Bahamas, it looks like an absolutely devastating situation there. We are talking winds uh, sustained and gusting, uh, approaching 300 kilometers per hour. So just imagine for a moment what that's like. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, is uh, yesterday you were saying, uh, talking to us about a, a fairly nice day on the beach. It wasn't, there wasn't too much uh, whipping up of the waves and the wind and so on. Is anything different today, even though landfall in your part of, the, of Florida is not expected until perhaps Tuesday? Yeah, it's a little breezier, and the seas are a little bit bigger today, but you're right. We're still several days away. Um, I think what, what's changed, though, is sort of the mood around here. Uh, some of the forecast models that have come in over the past uh, 24 hours since we spoke last now have it a lot closer to the coast than it was before. And okay. we're talking a very small margin of error here where, uh, you know, just a, a few kilometers difference, uh, and that thing's either coming ashore or going to have very strong impacts on shore in Florida. It's interesting, Jackson, because yesterday there were several indicators that you reported to us that, in fact, the the real uh, thump of the impact might not be as damaging or as intense as previous hurricanes has. It seemed that way 24 hours ago, but clearly this is a very fluid storm. Yeah, and that's uh, exactly why the governor and officials here have urged people not to stop their preparations or right. become complacent, even as the forecast oscillates, because 
there's still a very good probability that this will have either a direct or strong indirect impact uh, right across the state. Let's talk about the warning system that's going on. I know the White House is talking about uh, FEMA teams uh, fanned out up and down the, the coast from the Carolinas right down to Florida and so on. But you're in Florida, and we've all seen back here uh, clips of the governor warning the people of Florida to not take this thing anything but terribly seriously. And yet with the delay, uh, it, you were saying yesterday, Jackson, that in fact may be a positive in that more people get informed and more people get prepared. Yeah, so a few things we've noticed since our arrival on Friday that have changed. Uh, no longer really long lines for gas. People have gassed up at this point. They've got okay. their fuel, but also about half the gas stations have run dry. So mm-hmm. the stations that are open, though, things seem to be working fairly smoothly at this point. I think that initial rush and panic is gone. Uh, at the hardware stores, still lots of people there stocking up on supplies. And I think what you're seeing now are people realizing that this forecast is starting to come into view. And so they are making the decision to uh, board up their homes at its time while they've got a couple days left because uh, the risk is they wait too long and then an evacuation order happens and then they don't have time to do it at all. Exactly. Now, you were talking, you're in Daytona Beach, south of you, about an hour's drive south of you, is uh, the is, is NASA, is uh, Cape Canaveral. And the area down there, uh, you were telling us yesterday, was under an evacuation notice. In other words, they hadn't been ordered to leave, but they had been ordered to get ready and be, when told to leave, to, to get out of there. Does, is that status still in effect? Yeah, so they had actually got to the point of issuing a mandatory evacuation order for people on the barrier islands, people in mobile homes, people with disabilities. It was supposed to come into effect this morning, and they've now delayed that by a full day just to reflect the changing timing of the storm. But further south, uh, towards West Palm Beach, for example, now you're seeing those mandatory evacuation orders come into effect beginning today. And it's the same thing. It's very limited in scope. It's for the areas right up along the coast, uh, for people in low-lying areas or in mobile homes. They're the ones being told... Uh, to get out now. So let's talk a little bit about the major population centers. And of course, Jackson, when one thinks of Florida, Miami immediately comes to mind. Is that big city in imminent danger? It's not. It seems to be south of the forecast cone at this point. But there is still a risk, of course, of storm surge and high water there. And so people there have been stocking up on sandbags that are being handed out by the city and the county, uh, just to be sure. And uh, we're going to check in with uh, with the Canadian meteorologist uh, later in the hour to find out what, what something uh, in more detail about uh, what you and I talked about yesterday. The the net end result of a lot of these hurricane season storms in Florida is the storm essentially works its way its way up the eastern coast of North America and uh, peters out over the Atlantic after having nicked uh, New England and Atlantic Canada. A- any indications from the forecasters in your area as to the trajectory this storm might take? Uh, you know, everyone down here is just really sort of focused on the next 90 hours or so, which is sure. really just the Florida, Carolina, Georgia part of this. Uh, and, and really, when you get beyond sort of 60 hours, it becomes very uncertain. So sure. uh, no real indications of that on my end, but I'm not a meteorologist. <laughs> sure, of course. But in terms of preparation, uh, you're, you're indicating now, because yesterday it's different. Yesterday you were saying that there were still long lineups at gas stations because people were still uh, desperate to at least have the, the tank full uh, come what emergencies may evolve out of this storm. But now, again, because things have been not pushed back, but because there is a, a natural delay to it all, uh, all of those sort of panicky things have calmed down and that's probably a good thing too isn't it jackson it really is uh you know where we are in daytona beach of course it's a tourist town and most people are checking out of the hotels and moving mm-hmm. on, but very slowly there's no mass exodus at this point people have the time that they need to make a coherent and comprehensive plan and that's kind of the best thing anybody could ask for in a situation like this Okay, and a final question to you, and we are grateful for your time. Good to have you on the program again today. Uh, what's the prediction for for Jackson and the global team uh, on Daytona Beach? Are you going to stick it out there? Is that going to be home base for this whole thing, or are you uh, prepared to, to, to get out? Of course, if you have to leave, you will, but is the plan to stay there and, and, and to sort of observe from there? Uh, We're going to be evaluating based on the forecast, so uh, we will determine tomorrow uh, whether we stay or whether we move further inland or north or south. We really want to see, uh, like a lot of people, how the forecast shapes up. Sure. 
And right now it's just uh, it's a category five, which it was not at this time yesterday when you and I spoke. And that's that is not good news. It is not. And uh, again, even if it continues to just hug the coast of Florida, uh, you'll see at least tropical storm force winds on shore and that will have an impact. Interesting stuff. Well, as I advised you yesterday, Jackson, stay safe. And thanks very much for doing this with us. And we'll be looking forward to more updates as uh, Hurricane Dorian uh, makes landfall over the next 48 hours. Thanks for this again. Thank you. Jackson Prosco is Global News Washington Bureau Chief on assignment on Daytona Beach, Florida. I'm Sterling Fox, and joined on the line from Calgary by Professor Hetty Rusing from the School of Education at the University of Calgary. Professor Rusing recently wrote a piece entitled, Why Cursive Handwriting Needs to Make a School Comeback. Professor Rusing, Hetty, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I have strong feelings on this. So let's start with uh, why cursive reading, handwriting needs to make a comeback. When did it go away? Oh, I think it uh, was mm, put on the back burner probably mm, 30 years, 35 years ago or so. As a, as a taught skill? Or, as a or... taught skill and something that kids could do. So over the decades, we've... Notice more and more often that uh, writers don't write in a connected hand style. They print. Mm-hmm. So is this a consequence of our infatuation, particularly in the early days, with all things digital? Who knows? But uh, that's a connection I'm anxious to try and pursue a little bit. Um, I noticed with children, even with their printing, that their printing was belabored, I would say, and that I would start to connect to the early development instrument data showing that our five-year-olds don't have the um, pincer grip and so on, the the, uh, kinds of skills that it takes to start printing. And for me, the transition to a connected script, let's say in the grade three year, that allows children and young students to become more fluent in what they can put on the page. Ah, okay. So the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, appear to be, of course, long gone and are are kind of smiled and looked down the noses uh, by many in the education industry. However, the basics are still, frankly, entirely applicable for most human beings for most of their lives, Hetty. So why the disconnect? Why is it so dramatic? I think there is new emerging research from the neurosciences and the cognitive sciences, the uh, linguistics and so on, telling us that the pendulum needs to swing back a little bit. So, um, you know, in education, many things kind of go one way, another way, and a a sensible balance in the middle would be lovely. I, I think we need to understand the role of skills as well as the use of those skills in order to produce all the things that we want kids to do when they problem solve or um, look for information, um, interact with others, and so on. Is it safe to assume, Professor Rusing, that many of today's young teachers teaching our little kids in elementary school don't have cursive writing skills themselves and couldn't teach it if even if they were asked to? I I hate to tell you this, but I think that you're on to something. I I think that there are lots and lots of young um, teachers who themselves don't have a fluent hand and would need to maybe take some professional development or learn how to do this themselves. Um, in my own research, I, I can, of course, handwrite. I'm old. <laughs> and But I was very interested in, in finding out how this stuff is taught. And um, so I took professional development and, and became very intrigued, really, with the neuroscience, the, the um, visual memory, the neuromotor engagement that's involved. Uh, we, we've undervalued and misunderstood a lot of that, and it's coming back. Well, is a lot of it just our, uh, is it sheer laziness? I mean, we're human beings and we like the easy way out every chance we can find one. And it's awfully easy to just, you know, uh, turn on a calculator to do your math, turn on your keyboard to send a note to someone. Uh, And so why bother with anything else? This is just quick and easy. It 
it is quick and easy, but it's not the long, it is in a way offloading your skills and your memory to a device. And mm-hmm. uh, I think we need to make a comeback. I think there's lots telling us that the role of the hands in learning is really, really important, especially to little kids who are concrete learners, and that visually mediated simulations that come to you through a screen are no replacement for involving your hands in learning the world, constructing the world, and and developing internalized mental models of what the world looks like. Is this unique to North America, Hetty? Are kids in other parts of the world mostly still taught handwriting as a part of their curriculum? I think the computer era, the 21st uh, century literacies, and that's not going to go away. I'm I'm not um, naive about any of that. I think kids have moved on, but I think what when in moving on, we've lost something. So what is interesting is that this article was also published in French and so and this has found its way into a whole other readership so I don't think it's just Canada when you look at where this has gone it's gone international Mm -hmm. and I would say in many many other countries including Germany and France um, many other and Finland that gave up uh, teaching cursive handwriting probably about five years ago so Maybe it's coming back. That'd be nice to think. It, it certainly would. I'm not the only person in this country who has strong feelings about this, Hetty. I'm going to just open up the phone lines as we go forward. So uh, any other taxpayers and former students like me who are just appalled by this uh, can have uh, can have at you. 1-800-263-2428. 1-800-263-2428. Lines are open right now. Uh, is this a generational thing? Uh, uh, you, you described yourself as probably belonging to the same generation generation I do, and I am just, as I say, I'm just frankly just floored by this, that we would let something that uh, vital just go away uh, in, in, in some ways and for some to some degree out of sheer laziness. It's just stunning. Uh, and, and we're not alone in this, uh, and, and yet it, it just seems to have gone so completely out the door. It, was ju- it, ju- it left the building, Hetty. It did. But it's making a comeback. And, you know, I think there's been competition on children's time and attention. The curriculum is terribly cluttered with many, many other things uh, teachers are expected to address in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. It seemed like an easy thing to assume that kids would somehow make a transition in their handwriting that uh, would be easy. To be fair, the cursive handwriting that we were taught 30, 40, 50, 60, 65 years ago was very loopy, very embellished. Indeed. Um, and, and that's hard on visual memory. It's hard on the muscle memory for children. And so what we're advocating for is a mixed, mostly manuscript. It's a, an easy, in the article if you'll see it, um, a, a very clean, uncluttered, simple transition uh, that's a, a type of an italic hand that allows for connection that in turn permits fluency of hand that will unlock cognitive uh, working memory space for kids to do some um, uh, planning, revising, retrieving vocabulary, and things like that. So well, I'm just I'm sitting here with a desk full of notes. I'm a compulsive scribbler, Hetty, and as as you and I are talking, and all of our guests, I have, I have copious notes. And as as you say something, I'll write it down because I don't want to forget what you said, the key word, and that sort of thing. I can't imagine not having that skill. No, I can't either. And I think also in the article, it it goes beyond just a skill. I would almost say that your hands are inextricably and intimately related to identity, agency, uh, your ability to advocate. So when we think of uh, the the diary of Anne Frank or we think of Malala's uh, uh, ability to uh, send her message out into the universe. To the girls of the world, yeah. The girls of the world who wanted education or who just wanted the world to know what was going on in their lives. Both of them, you know, were, were faced with certain deaths, and I think um, their sense was that through literacy, engagement, and getting it out there in a way, their life mattered. The uni- they wanted to be remembered to the universe. 
somebody would read this down the line, and, and we did. Millions know the story of sure. Frank. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, the current curriculum levels, is it forbidden in, in the provincial education curricula, or is it uh, optional? Wh- where is it? What is the status? And I would imagine, I guess it varies from province to province, right? It does vary from province to province, and some um, provinces... Uh, would suggest that handwriting is expected, but it, it is not offering enough specificity on its instruction okay. or its assessment. So it's kind of embedded. It's kind of there. Um, you have to look hard for it. I think right now there are only two provinces that really make it clear of what those expectations are. One of them would be uh, Prince Edward Island. I think the other one might be Saskatchewan. Okay. Is it forbidden anywhere in Canada? No, I don't think it's forbidden. I just don't think it's it's emphasized or expected or and recognized as something of value. I, I um, that's what I think. Is Couldn't agree with you more. Of. Let's go to the phone lines. And Russ in High River, Alberta, has been oh. patiently standing by to have his say on this cursive writing business. Russ, thanks for waiting. What do you think? Well, I I'm a first of all, I'm gonna let you, I'm a 70 year old gentleman who have lots of grandkids, and I. Uh, I had my kids here the other day. My grandkids were here, and we were playing cards, and they couldn't add five, four numbers together, and they're ready for university, and they can't write. None of those kids can write today because my grandkids come, and they, they spend time with us out at the lake, and they, they, we see them. You can't, you can't read their writing, mm-hmm. and I, I, you're, the, the lady who is very right said we have to make it easy. Since when did school have to be easy? When I went to school, school was school, and you had to learn to read and write and arithmetic, and you had to add. I talked to my granddaughters and said, and they're 17 and 18, and they said, oh, we're, we do everything with a calculator. And I right. Said, you, can't order, you can't add five cards together? Because they were amazed that Grandpa's playing cards with them, and he can do t- add 10 cards up in his head. Add on the fly. Imagine. Such a skill, yeah. Russ. I'll, I'll, I'll let, thanks for the call. I appreciate your patience. And uh, let's uh, let Professor Rusing have a go at it. And, and, and I, he, he was taking exception to a certain extent, Hetty, about your notion that this has to be made easy for children. I think it, I don't mean it to be um, effortless. What I do mean is, is that the engagement with the hands... Uh, I think in the style that probably Russ, Russ and I are about the same age. I just turned 69 the day before yesterday. Uh, probably oh, belated happy in birthday. School, oh, thanks, Russ. We were taught a very kind of embellished, loopy, turny, twisty style. And right. over time, people, I think, anyway, d- adopt and, and uh, develop a personalized style that for them works a bit better. And quite often, that is much more simple. So it may be that the word easy isn't the right word, but the word simple could be uh, okay. yeah, easier on the hands, for, especially right. for little kids. Uh, right. And, and that's, that's the other part about writing, of course, that we forget because we, it's been a while since a pencil or a fountain pen or something like that was a big deal to try and hold and manipulate. But yeah, that, that's, part of the, that's part of the skill of cursive writing. And just before we go to Clark, um, how, many, how many of today's kids who can't write also can't tell the time on an analog clock. I wouldn't be surprised that that be a lot of kids. And I, I notice uh, I tutor a bunch of kids, and I agree with Russ that many of them don't have the automatized um, access to just um, basic arithmetic if it's not in their And if their calculator makes a mistake, they don't recognize that either. They just accept the answer, whether mm. it's right or wrong. Interesting. Clark in Didsbury, thank you for waiting, and good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sterling, your guest. Uh, <clears throat> my mother was a teacher from the 40s. She had a wartime warrant. She was 19. Uh-huh. She taught up at Beaver Lodge uh, at a log school. She taught me cursive writing, taught me to read. She used a thing called phonics for reading. Sure. But she said when you're writing, you have to make it look good. And so I... Years pass by, I do a little bit of hand engraving and uh, manually, and I'm getting back because I've hung on to some of her journals and her beautiful hand, and ah. anybody who's talked to her around town just admired her beautiful hand. But I look at the idea that it is, A, you're going to express an idea, 
and the other you should have a certain amount of determination and seriousness about it and engaging not only the logical but the artistic portion of the brain which i think call it a supposition that this will enrich the mind of the writer not to mention those who read it interesting stuff okay clark again thank you very much for your call i appreciate your patience on a sunday afternoon hetty some interesting comments for you oh i agree with clark a hundred percent um those who now the key here though to fluency is automaticity and uh, the ability to lessen or lower the cognitive load or the cognitive bar so that now you can go after those creative thoughts, those uh, just right words that you're looking for. So it isn't the presentation effect itself, and that was one of the problems that I think many people railed against 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. That, well, if we're only about pretty on the page, why bother? Uh, It's more about the meaning you can make. But when I look at children's handwriting, if it I can tell right away if it's a belabored hand, um, if it doesn't look good on the page, probably they don't have the automaticity or the um, fluency that it takes to, to get the job done. Right. And so being, taught, being taught how to hold a pencil is, is such an ultra basic element that apparently seems to be lacking. It's lacking. And, and we're finding more and more children at age five who don't have the... Um, the grip strength um, don't have the, the fine motor control sure. from, that they would have learned to be able to do all of this. Interesting stuff. Uh, Theconversation.com is where you find Professor Hetty Rusing's article uh, asking the uh, rhetorical question. No, it's not rhetorical. Why cursive writing, handwriting, needs to make a school comeback? Very provocative stuff. Very well-reasoned piece, too, Professor Rusing. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, and I'm very grateful for your time on Labor Day weekend, a couple of days after your birthday. Thanks for this. And I'm really glad Russ and Clark were listening right in my backyard. That's right. Thanks very much again, Thank Hetty. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 